invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want you to listen to the very first words from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. This is in his preface to the letter. This is how the whole thing starts for Luther with these words. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Romans is purest gospel, pure gospel. It's a letter from Paul to a particular audience, according to verse 7, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. But what kind of letter is Romans? There are lots of different types of letters. There are business letters, and there are pen pal letters, and love letters, and thank you notes, and Christmas letters. Romans is a unique kind of letter. It is a theological treatise more than anything. It, it is the most formal, the most systematic exposition of the gospel that we find in any of Paul's letters. It is sheer gospel, just straight gospel, pure gospel. But Romans is gospel with a purpose. The reason that Paul distills the gospel in this letter to this audience is, could be summed up a lot of ways. I think it's, one, to unify the churches in Rome, and two, to secure their partnership in gospel mission. We know at the end of the letter, he's planning to launch into Spain to preach Christ where he has not been named, and he wants the Romans to be partners with him in that mission. So the unity of the church, because there was some friction there in Rome between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, their unity through the gospel and their partnership in the gospel. That's what Paul has in mind. And to accomplish that, to secure that, he just lays out this systematic treatment of the gospel. His aim comes through loud and clear in this prayer at the, toward the end of the letter, Romans 15, 5 and 6. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the aim of Paul's letter to the Romans. And what does the God of endurance and encouragement use to sustain his people with joy through tribulation and hardship and persecution and distress and famine and nakedness and sword, that list that Paul gives in Romans 8? What God uses to produce that kind of joyful endurance is pure gospel, gospel doctrine. That's what produces that kind of endurance in the people of God. And what is God's plan for uniting diverse people in harmonious praise that with one voice they glorify God? Pure gospel. 
doctrine of the gospel. That's what God uses to unite his people. And what does God use to move people toward mission? So that the gospel sounds forth to new places, in new people, pure gospel. So that's what we're praying for as we occupy ourselves with Romans. Gospel doctrine producing genuine unity and sustaining joyful endurance and motivating passionate mission all to the glory of God. That's where all of this goes. There there is one overarching aim Paul has in this letter. It's right there at the end of Romans 15, 6, that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory and praise of God resounding from the hearts, the lips of his people. That is what happens when the people of God stand firmly on the gospel, treasure the gospel, remember the gospel. Doctrines that we've heard before, that we're well acquainted with, but we need to hear and be reminded of again and again. That's Paul's ultimate aim in writing pure gospel to the Romans. And that's our aim in preaching it. And it's, it's God's aim in accomplishing the gospel, that God would be worshipped, that he would be treasured, that he would be exalted everywhere. And so starting today, we are launching a a series through the book of Romans, which which feels like this monstrous task. Uh, We're going to break it up into four parts. So today through Easter Sunday, we're going to be in Romans 1 through 4. And we're going to break it up like that because we like to keep a kind of a well-balanced diet. What we're hearing in scripture will be in Romans for a while. And we'll just break it up into parts with some other things interspersed. I'm excited for this book. Pure gospel. Sheer gospel. And I want to invite you to do together as a church what Luther commends. Let's let's occupy ourselves with Romans like it's daily bread for our souls. Let's read it. Let's meditate on it. You can't do that too much. You cannot do that too well. Maybe God might even lead you to memorize portions of Romans word for word. If you follow Luther, you would memorize this whole book word for word. (laughs) That would be a worthwhile pursuit. You would not be wasting your time. Let's trust God to make his gospel more precious and better tasting to us than ever, that we would savor it together. So, This morning, we're going to be in Romans 1, and I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able out of reverence for God's word. Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. We ask you to sanctify us according to your truth 
for your glory and for our good and the sake of your praise among all peoples. Amen. You may be seated. So in Romans 1, 1 through 7, we have Paul's prescript, his introduction to his letter. And it is the longest of all the introductions and all of the letters of Paul that we have. A a typical Greek introduction in a letter uh, was structured a lot like our more formal business letters where you have the, the sender's name first and then the recipient and then the content of the letter. And most Greek letters started out something like sender to recipient, greetings, and then right to the point. And if you've read the letters of Paul, you know his introductions are longer than that. He has a lot more to say in his introductions. And then we come to Romans, and there's this monster introduction, seven verses long and packed with pure gospel before he even gets into the content of the letter. So why is the introduction to Romans so long, so much longer than any of his other letters? It's out of the norm for Paul. And the answer is most likely because Paul's actually introducing himself to the churches in Rome for the first time. All of Paul's other letters he wrote to churches that he had planted, where he had ministered, where he had spent time. He had been there in person with them. He didn't have to introduce himself like you introduce yourself to somebody that you're meeting for the first time. But Romans is unique because Paul didn't plant the churches in Rome. Peter didn't plant the churches in Rome. We're not quite sure how they got started, probably through Jews who had lived in Rome and traveled to Jerusalem and heard the gospel in Jerusalem and went back home to Rome and brought the gospel with them and shared it in their synagogues and probably that's where Gentiles who met in the synagogues first heard it, but somehow the gospel took off. It started to spread in Rome and there are all of these Christians there. Churches pop up in Rome and Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ and so he's writing to establish connection with them and his God-given authority to teach them and lead them in the sound doctrine of the gospel and to partner with them in ministry and mission. So we know from his conclusion, he greets certain people by name. As he's traveled around, he's met people who lived in Rome, and some of them are back there. So he knows individuals there, but he has not met these churches. He hasn't been there before. He's longing to go there, to meet them face-to-face, but he gives this long introduction to establish his connection to them, to introduce himself. And introductions really tell us a lot about someone, don't they? I mean, you know the importance of first impressions. When you introduce yourself, you choose selectively what to put out there and what to hold back until you get to know somebody better. How does your social media bio read? Or if you're not on social media, if you had to introduce yourself in a sentence or two, if you're limited to a certain number of characters, how would you introduce yourself? Who are you? What what defines you? Do, Do you lead with your job title? Do you lead with your spouse and kids and their names and how many you have, kids that is, your education, your experience, your hobbies, your interests, what, what do you lead with? And it probably depends largely on the context, right? If you're at a business networking meeting, you're going to introduce yourself a certain way and maybe give your elevator speech. If you're in a job interview, you might introduce yourself another way. If you're meeting a new neighbor who moved in across the street, how do you introduce yourself? In his introduction to the Romans, Paul leaves no doubt about his priorities. He is all about the gospel. And that gospel is all about Jesus. And Paul understands everyone and everything else in relationship to Jesus. Paul identifies himself 
in relationship to Jesus. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. A slave is the word he uses. He defines his message as Jesus. The gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his message. Paul describes his ministry as being from Jesus and for Jesus. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ we have received grace and apostleship for the sake of his name. Jesus. And Paul regards the church in Rome. People he's never met. He views them in relationship to Jesus. Verse 6, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul cuts right to the chase. Nothing matters more than how you respond to Jesus. Nothing matters more than how you respond to Jesus. Or more specifically, nothing matters more than responding to Jesus in faith. You take, take your resume, take your net worth statement, and take your past, all of your successes, and all of your failures that you're ashamed of, and take your personality type, depending on all the tests you've taken to assess that. You heap up all of those different ways you could describe yourself and identify yourself. The attribute that defines you more than any other is who you are in relationship to Jesus, namely whether or not you trust him. And that's not to say that nothing else about you matters. Actually, it's, it's way bigger than that. It means in everything else that you do, the only thing that matters there is whether you're doing that as one who trusts and obeys Jesus. So everything matters. It all matters. And it matters that you're trusting Jesus in all of that. Paul sees everyone and everything in relationship to Jesus. So no matter who you are, no matter your skin color or your ethnic identity, no matter how you identify or what pronouns you prefer or who you voted for in the last election or what you believe about vaccines or masks or how you feel about God, it, none of that all of that is under this. How are you responding to Jesus? You are, regardless of any of that, you are obligated to believe the gospel of God about Jesus. Everyone in the world is required to believe this gospel. The source of the gospel and the claims of the gospel and the implications of the gospel all demand that you trust in Jesus and that's the structure of Paul's intro. I want to walk you through this, beginning with the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel demands that you trust Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what you, how you think or what you may prefer to believe. The source of the gospel demands that you trust in Jesus. Your response to the gospel of God matters more than anything because it is the gospel of God, after all. That is, it comes from God. We live in a time when it is almost impossible to know who to trust or what to believe anymore. Anybody else feel overwhelmed by that lately? I mean, just, I see all kinds of claims, and I just gotten to the point I just kind of shrug my shoulders and think, I don't know. How could I possibly know if that's true? The Edelman Trust Barometer, which apparently annually measures trust in various institutions in society, uh, just came out and found not surprisingly, I don't think you'll find it surprising, uh, that trust in the media is at an all-time low. Does that shock anybody? 56% of Americans believe journalists intentionally mislead people by exaggerating or lying. Or just think about it. How is your confidence level in, say, 
the CDC or the WHO or the GOP or the DNC or CNN or Fox. We go on and on and on. You just think, might question them a little bit. Through the fog of all the fake news and then on the other side, all of the conspiracy theories and all of the disputed claims and all of it, Romans 1 blasts this clarion call. Here is good news. Here is something you can trust. This is reliable. In fact, you're not just invited to trust it. You are required to believe it. Paul's first order of business is to prove his authority to the church in Rome. And so why should they listen to him? Why should they believe anything he says? What gives him the right to speak to them? Paul answers that in verse 1 by giving his credentials. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He has authority because he's under authority. And the authority that he's under is God. And the gospel that he preaches is the gospel of God. It comes from God. And so as a servant of God, Paul is accountable. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, and he is accountable for what he says and what he does, and he may not go one inch beyond what his Lord and Master Jesus Christ has commanded him to do. And as an apostle, he's been commissioned by Jesus to establish churches and to teach them what Jesus taught and to disciple them according to all that Jesus taught. And he has no authority apart from that commission that he's been given. And it's so all-encompassing for Paul that he can say, my entire life has been set apart for this purpose and this pur purpose only. Everything else has been sacrificed. Paul's comfort, his ease, his convenience, everything else, his safety, it's all sacrificed for this mission, the gospel of God. And notice, th those are passive things. Being called, being set apart, it's not something Paul did, something God did to Paul. It was God's sovereign grace, God's initiative toward him, God acting toward Paul that set Paul apart for the sake of the gospel. So all of this comes from God, which is why every human being on the planet is obligated to believe it, because God is the creator and ruler of everything, the living God who made it all. And the gospel that Paul preached didn't come from his own imagination or from the opinions of any human. Look at verse 2, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul says, you can go verify for yourself. You can go look up all of the prophetic writings in Scripture. It's right there, written down, recorded for generations, verifiable. And so that was Paul's practice. Wherever he would go, he would reason with Jews from the Scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Christ. We know that Acts 17, the, the Berean Jews were more noble because they actually went and searched the Scriptures to see if these things were really so. Paul's saying, look, my claim is not that I came up with some message. How could I? It was prophesied long before I ever came on the scenes, rooted and grounded in God. God promised it long beforehand through God's prophets. It comes from him. So you may choose to ignore human voices, and in fact, there, there are many voices we would do well to ignore. But you must pay attention to the gospel of God because it comes from God. Everyone on earth must pay attention to the gospel of God. The claims of the gospel demand that you trust Jesus as well. After introducing himself, Paul outlines his message. He introduces his calling in verses 1 and 2, and then his message in, in verses 3 and 4. The gospel of God concerning his son who was descended from 
David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. At the center of Paul's message stands a person, Jesus, the Son of God. In the span of two verses, Paul calls Jesus by four different titles. He's the seed of David in verse 3. He's the Son of God, the Christ, or the Messiah, or God's anointed King, and our Lord in verse 4. The gospel is all about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus, who he is and what he did. Therefore, to deviate from Jesus at all is to deviate from the gospel. No Jesus, no gospel. It's about Jesus. And in particular, the gospel is the good news that the man, Jesus, conquered sin and death to reign over the world as God's anointed king, giving forgiveness of sins and life forever to all who trust in him. The good news that this man, Jesus, conquered sin and death and now reigns as God's anointed king over the world, giving life and forgiveness of sins to all who trust in him. And here's where I get that. Notice the two phrases in these verses, according to the flesh and according to the spirit. And at first glance, it sounds like Paul might be talking about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, but that's, that's not quite it. To Paul, if we read the rest of Paul, this contrast between flesh and spirit, he uses as a contrast between the old and the new. The old that's marked by weakness and sin and death and the new that's marked by the spirit and life and power. Just take Romans 8, for example, where the flesh is death and the flesh is hostile to God and the flesh cannot please God, but the spirit is life and peace and righteousness and the spirit helps us in our weakness. So Jesus was born in the flesh, not in sin, but according to Romans 8, 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's astounding. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus, according to the flesh, was born in weakness and humility as the heir. That's what Paul means by the seed of David, the descendant of David. He was born in flesh as the heir to David's throne, but not yet the king. He was raised in power and glory, according to the Spirit, as the king of the world. Something happened when Jesus rose from the dead that changes all of human history. At his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, who has always been for all eternity the Son of God, was appointed. I think that's a better translation than the word declared. He was appointed the Son of God in power. That's what the gospel claims. He was inaugurated the king of of the world. He took office. He ascended to his throne when he was raised from the dead. And from there, he now rules and reigns over God's world. Now, this means that Jesus' resurrection from the dead marks the beginning of the new age of the spirit, life, power, forgiveness of sins, fruitfulness. And the throne he occupies is his by right by right of his resurrection from the dead. He won it fair and square. He ascended to his throne by descending to the grave and then triumphing over it. And and that means that his kingship is eternally secured. Nobody can steal it from him. Nobody can usurp his throne. 
No insurrection against him will ever succeed. No resistance to his rule and reign can long endure. And that's why no one on earth can remain neutral in response to this message. The gospel is not a great suggestion for the world like, hey, try Jesus if you feel like it. It's not a sales pitch. It's not like 30 days, no money, trial, do you want to check it out? And I think sometimes as Christians, we have that like almost sheepish view of the gospel, like, you know, I believe this and it's okay if you don't. No, this is with boldness and confidence we declare to the world, God appointed his son the king of all of this. The crown rights of Jesus means he rules over all of it. And it's not a question mark at the end of it. Like, do you agree? No, believe. Or if you don't, then you are in rebellion against him, which is a dreadful thing. There's no question mark at the end of the gospel. It's just a declaration. He rose from the dead. He has been appointed by God, king of the world, period. And he's king. And so the claim, that claim of the gospel demands that you trust in Jesus, that all people everywhere trust in Jesus. Finally, the implications of this gospel demand your faith. The gospel of God concerning his son, this crucified and risen king of the world, this gospel demands a, a response. Having asserted his authority from God, the first couple of verses, then outlining the gospel of God, Paul concludes his introduction by describing the intended effect of his ministry. Verses five and six. Through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So this gospel demands a response. And the response it calls for, Paul describes as the obedience of faith. He uses that exact same phrase here in his introduction and then in his conclusion, the very last sentence of the entire letter, Romans 16, 26, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? Well, Paul says in Romans 10, 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So the gospel is something that can be obeyed or disobeyed. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So you see the parallel there? They have not all obeyed the gospel. Lord, who has believed? How do you obey the gospel? You believe it. When you hear the gospel, you must believe it. That's how you obey the gospel. There are only two responses to it. There's belief and there's unbelief. There's obedience and there's disobedience. But the obedience of faith is not just that one-time thing that the first time you hear it, you believe it. The obedience of faith, I think, is, is more than that. It's not just initial faith. Saving faith itself is persevering faith. It's obedient faith. This faith in response to the gospel actually produces God-glorifying obedience. The only kind of obedience that actually honors God is the kind of obedience that comes from faith. So even there, there, there are two ways to obey God. One is in self-reliance, trusting in yourself, trying to earn something from God which is actually a way of rejecting God and doing it, doing it yourself, or you can obey God by faith. Romans 9, 31 through 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why, Paul asks? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You get that? The commands that God gave to Israel were always meant to be obeyed by faith, not by self-reliant 
works. So you can obey in two different ways, faith or self-reliance. The gospel produces the obedience of faith, and it demands a response. But the gospel not only demands a response from us, it secures unimaginable blessings for us. What Paul says about the church in Rome is true of you and of all believers in every age, in every place. Listen to verses six and seven. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are implications of the gospel. Because the Son of God took on flesh and conquered sin and death and was raised from the dead, God's appointed king, then you who were once alienated from God now belong to him. You belong to him. You belong here. You who, were once, who, who once deserved his wrath, you are now loved by God. All of his favor, all of his affection, all of his kindness and his goodness and his wisdom flows toward you in Christ Jesus. You who once lived in slavery to sin are now called to be saints. That means to actually live lives of righteousness and holiness in the obedience of faith in response to the gospel of Jesus. And in this gospel, you have access to grace and peace from God. God's grace, his dynamic power working for you and in you and toward you. And God's own peace guarding your heart and your mind from fear and anxiety. You have peace with God and you have peace with each other through Jesus. These are the implications of the gospel that we enjoy together. And all of this, all of this is because of Jesus. And therefore, all of it is to the praise of Jesus. That's Paul's ultimate aim. For the sake of his name among all the nations. That's what the gospel's for. That people from every tribe and tongue and language would know this Christ, treasure him, trust him, worship him together with everyone else from all kinds of different pasts and backgrounds and ethnicities for the sake of his name. We need this gospel so desperately at all times. In this particular time, our society is fractured and fragmented. I mean, fault lines that just open up everywhere. It seems like people always are just finding themselves on extreme sides opposed to other people that they thought they were close to, right? Masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, police or no police, bathrooms or no bathrooms. <laughs> Politics, everything is just fault lines everywhere. And it's not that those things don't matter. What, what matters at the foundation, the bedrock for us, is the gospel of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus in all of life. He is king over all, and therefore nothing matters more than us responding to this king in faith. So let's trust him and obey him as we treasure his gospel together through the book of Romans. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. What a glorious king. Triumphant 
over sin, triumphant over the grave. You purchased us with your blood, with your own blood. So there should be no doubt in our minds. We belong to you. We are yours. You own us, and you are our king, our Lord, our savior, our great God. We pray that our response to you would be one of faith in every last corner and closet and part of our lives, that your lordship in all of life would come out in such powerful and compelling ways that more and more and more and more people would come to know you and that we would together with one voice glorify our God. Amen. Let's sing together.